Welcome to We Need to Talk, conversations on wellness to inspire, relate and enlighten with Coast FM's feel-good breakfast host, Tony Street. Welcome to the We Need to Talk health and wellness podcast. It's great to have you with us today. We're talking to Dr Libby Weaver today, who has helped countless women all over New Zealand get their health back on track over many, many years. She now has a new program launching called Shake Off Sugar. It's a six-week online course that aims to cut our dependence on the sweet stuff. I'm interested personally in this because I know how sugar can really impact my moods and mental health. And when I'm off the sweet stuff, I genuinely notice I'm on more of an even keel, which helps in coping with life's daily challenges. But it is delicious and it feels good. And when you're stressed, it's often the first thing we reach for. So, Dr. Libby, it's lovely to have you here. I love sitting here with you, Tony. Thank you. Well, we were just having a wee discussion off here, and I think we should start with this, how sugar plays quite a major part in your diet and getting it under control more so as we age. Can you explain that? Yes, of course. So uh, yeah, the the longer we're on the planet, the more important it is to really get a handle on our sugar. And one of the reasons is as we start to go through a perimenopausal transition towards menopause, obviously the first thing that happens is we stop ovulating every month. We will occasionally, of course, but that means that we have months where there's no progesterone. And then the next stage of perimenopause is when estrogen starts to fluctuate, highs and lows, to eventually when both hormones there's none of it or very low levels of it. So what happens across that transition is testosterone remains fairly consistent and we are in a situation through perimenopause that I refer to as testosterone dominance. Now that language really matters. It's not an excess, it's just a a natural testosterone dominance because the other hormones have fallen away. But what happens is because we haven't necessarily taken care of our health and we've been over-consuming sugar, knowingly or unknowingly in the lead up to that, we might have a bit of belly fat there that we think, oh, you know, it's a bit tricky to move, but one day I'll get to it. And that's essentially insulin resistance. It's insulin resistance that makes the, sh- the, the belly fat stick to us there. And that then makes the testosterone dominance worse. So then we become, we have an excess of it and they feed each other. So that excess of testosterone then feeds worsening insulin resistance. And when you have constantly high insulin levels, it says to every cell in your body, hang on to everything you've got, never ever burn that fat that's there. And so it's, I think it's a big contributor to why women will say, I feel like I've gained, you know, weight across this transition and it's so hard to move. What I used to do no longer works. And really dealing with the sugar and getting that insulin resistance under control is game changing. Do you think women understand that it's sugar that is giving them that sort of added belly flat fat that they necess- don't necessarily want? I, I think I didn't. I would have just thought, oh, I'm eating too much or um, maybe I'm hormonal. I don't know. I wouldn't have thought sugar's the problem. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's common, Tony. But also, I think some of us are aware of how much we sug- how much sugar we're having, and you know we think, oh, I'll I'll make better choices today, and we might make better choices for brekkie and lunch. But then, in the middle of the afternoon or after dinner, you feel like something else has taken over your body. The cravings get really strong. But there are also people I think who have no idea how much sugar they're actually having because it's hidden in so many foods. It's on average in New Zealand we're consuming thirty seven teaspoons a day when we're told that six teaspoons a day is okay for our health and longevity. Gosh. So. Yeah, it's, it's a major problem because it's it's in pretty much any packaged food you pick up. 
Yeah, and that is why you've created this course. Why sugar specifically? Why did you not look at, I don't know, getting more vegetables in your diet or um, <laughs> cutting your carbs down? Why was it sugar that you've targeted? <laughs> I do bark on a lot about eating more vegetables. Uh, <laughs> yes, you do. I do. But um, the sh- I focused on the sugar because the feedback I've had over 20 plus years of working with people is it's the thing that's the pe- thing it's the thing people find hardest to take a break from, to reduce or to, 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 to completely quit. And there are many reasons for that. One of them is biochemical because it leads us to produce dopamine in our brain. But unfortunately, a little bit of sugar initially gives us a dopamine hit. But then over time, we seek more and more sugar to keep giving us that pleasurable experience. Research has also shown that food is getting sweeter. So it's really easy for us to get our hands on sweeter and sweeter food. And then, of course... The other reason I created it is because I'm fascinated by human behaviour and why we do the things we do, even though we have good knowledge, but we don't necessarily act on that. So I love to, if I can, to help people really believe they're worth taking care of and getting to the heart of those beliefs about their self-worth so that they can make better choices from a more effortless place rather than it feeling like, oh, I roll, I need to do this. Or, you know, Libby's been barking at me, I need to do this. It comes from a place of, I want to take care of my health. I want to live really well for as long as I can with great quality of life. So can we just go back to the six teaspoons a day? Where might we find those six teaspoons if we're trying to have a healthy day of eating. I mean, are we talking sugars and fruits and things like that? Yes. So that counts. <laughs> it does, but oh. you get but you get bang for your buck when you're consuming fruit. I I feel that it actually is sort of upsetting to me because people are frightened of fruit. Also, too, I think people have been really confused by the carbohydrate, the low carbohydrate message. Now, I'm not denying that for some people they feel terrific when they eat fewer carbohydrates. But when I have people of all ages and unfortunately sometimes even teenage girls saying to me, oh, I couldn't possibly eat a banana, it's too high in sugar, or, oh, no, I can't eat a potato because it's you know full of carbohydrates. It is, but there's also lots of benefits to that. And our brain and our kidneys and our red blood cells need the glucose carbohydrate provide. However, where the problem has come is with the massive overconsumption of carbohydrates, but particularly sugar from from all of the processed foods. So don't be frightened to eat a piece of fruit if you feel like you digest it well, because there's so much benefit as well uh, in that piece of piece of fruit. It's all the hidden sugars in the processed foods that I think we need to get get really honest with ourselves about and understand how much is actually in there. Yeah, can you give me some tangible examples? Because I'm trying to work out, you know, whether I'm having more than those six teaspoons in a day. So where, where would it come from? So easily in a pasta sauce, but then there's a better choice. You know, you could find a pasta sauce on the supermarket shelf that d- doesn't have any added sugar or it might have only a tiny bit. And what you're looking for is the per 100 grams column. Yep. So you go down to the line that says sugars, look across to the per 100 grams and you want it to be less less than five grams per hundred grams when you're picking up something like a pasta sauce, a tomato sauce, so a lot of sauces. Obviously, you know, you might have a juice. It might be a freshly squeezed juice or it might be, we know soft drink obviously is a really obvious source uh, of sugars. You might just pop to the cafe and think, oh, it's just one muffin and, you know, it's not that sweet. It's just got some blueberries in it. But is there also some sugar in that as well? You might think, oh, I'll just have two ginger nut biscuits and, well, they're not chocolate biscuits, so they're not as bad as the chocolate biscuits. But again, there'll be, there's six teaspoons in two ginger nut 
biscuits. Ooh. So straight up, there's, you know, there's kind of your quota for That's the day it. based on what the World Health Organization is saying is an okay amount for us to have. How many teaspoons in a standard muffin? <laughs> it varies based on the recipe, obviously, but there can be up to eight teaspoons. Oh, so it's your whole day blowing right there. Right there. Yeah. And, and that's the trick. That's the challenge, isn't it? Because we think it's just one thing here, one thing there, but it just accumulates to be an excessive amount. And Tony, the other thing too is snacking. I think a lot of people, they do really well for their main meals. That's not the problem. It's what they're grabbing between meals. It's just, oh, you know, I'm exhausted. I need just something to get me through. I'll grab a chocolate bar. Mm. Or first thing they walk in the door, they're hungry and they're thirsty. I'll grab a glass of wine. Well, white wine especially is fairly high in sugar, a lot of them. So again, we can, depending on how sweet it is or how dry it is, but you can have six teaspoons of sugar in two glasses of wine just like that. Yeah. So it's it's so easy for it to go in. So the, looking at snacks, uh, I think, is a really important step to take. The trick with snacks as well is when every time we eat, we make insulin. And so when we're eating too often, it can also lead us to have those consistently high insulin levels, which then feeds into that the body getting the message that it particularly needs to store that belly fat, which again can be such a disruptor at any time in our life, but particularly across that perimenopausal transition. This is We Need to Talk. If you're enjoying this podcast, click to share with family or friends. So would you recommend for women that are in that sort of perimenopause transition to perhaps not have as many meals a day? So different things work for different people, but yes, I, I would guide women towards three really satiating meals a day. I think a lot of women have a leftover or a constant dieting mentality. And there's this background, sometimes at the, it's at the front of our mind, but there's this background encouragement in your mind, oh, I've got to you know, eat as little as possible. I've got to eat as little as I can get away with oh, and I need to exercise. Rather than seeing food as nourishment, this food is going to give my body what it needs to be at its absolute best. I'm going to eat to satisfy my hunger because if I don't, I'll be hungry again in two hours and then I'm going to pick at poor quality food. So I'm a big fan of satiating meals so that you feel satisfied, so that you really enjoyed it rather than mm, what's next? Where can I get a little, yeah. a bit of happiness from? Yeah. Because it's interesting because I remember when there was a switch from three meals to eat five small small meals a day. Now, those meals, whether they're small or not, that theory goes against what you're saying, doesn't it? It does. And that theory actually began through the low-fat era because fat's very satiating. And so when we were told that fat was bad and we had to ah. cut it out, you get hungrier a lot sooner when there's no fat in your meals. And so we were when high carb, low fat was in fashion, blood sugars were on real roller coasters, so big highs and big lows. And when it's at a low, you're hungry again, which was pretty much every two hours. Now, for some people, they might have, if with type 1 or type 2 diabetes, obviously what I'm saying, it might need to be very, well, it will need to be very specifically tailored to an individual. But without type 1 or type 2 diabetes, then the, the goal I find to get insulin down, which is a game changer for people's health, 
uh, is three robust meals, satisfying meals a day, not snacking. Does it count if you have, say, a coffee in between? Well, <laughs> that coffee, caffeine can disrupt blood glucose levels, absolutely. So it does count. And uh, the, obviously the milk will have an effect on blood glucose, but caffeine, even a black coffee can affect blood glucose levels because a bit of, bit of geeky chemistry here. Unfortunately, caffeine leads the body to produce adrenaline and adrenaline will mobilise stored glucose from the liver and the muscles. So it'll elevate blood glucose uh, and, and then that drives an insulin response. Yeah, I've definitely changed my opinion on stacking after hearing this. <laughs> uh, so let's just talk a little bit more about the course. So someone uh, feels like they're addicted to sugar and I know what that's like when you have that treat after dinner every night, then you feel like you need it every night and it's quite hard to break. So how do you go about that across six weeks? So firstly, I'll look at is it biochemical? So is the person still looking for that happiness factor, that dopamine factor? So what else could you do? So a strategy I've used uh, many times with different clients over the years is, okay, finish your dinner, go through the routine, kids are in bed. And then before you go and have that sweet food, go and stand in the doorway of your children's bedroom and don't notice the mess or just soak them up and soak up how precious they are. And it, when you, if you stand there for 10 minutes and do that, very few people don't have a little tear in their eye if you're truly present with just how extraordinary those little humans are. And it can then feed that part of your soul that when that's really what you're looking for the sugar to give you. And if you still want the sugar, go have it. But I use that that or a strategy similar to that to help break that sort of behaviour pattern. Another really helpful strategy is you've had dinner, so you know you're physically satisfied. You're not actually hungry, even though your brain's saying, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. So have a little notepad in the kitchen and at the top of one column, say, what do I want? Well, I want chocolate biscuits, but no, no, keep pushing yourself because you're not actually hungry. So what do I really want? Your brain will probably still go, I want chocolate biscuits, mm -hmm. <laughs> but no, no, what else? You know, push yourself. Oh, I want to renovate the bathroom. I want to go on a holiday. I want someone to thank me for making their bed every day for the last 18 years. Okay, so it's not actually about having that thing. The next column in that question, or the question in the next column says, how would having that make me feel? I'd feel loved, I'd feel appreciated, I'd feel comforted because that's what you're actually asking the sugar to give you. And then the final column says, well, how else can I experience that emotion without it harming my health? So, and you find something that really spins your tires, that uplifts you. It's often going and giving the thing we want to receive fosters that feeling in us. So, uh, and it, you know, sometimes we can have an interaction with another person. It might be a faith, it might be nature, it might be a pet. Uh, it might just be focusing on the crazy privilege of this gift of life. Because I think even when there is genuine challenge, genuine pain, genuine suffering in our lives, there is also still extraordinary beauty that coexists. It's just that we're so focused on the challenges. So just reminding ourselves to let ourselves have what we already have, I think that too can just help shift that focus away from, oh, give me the biscuits yeah. after dinner. And just being mm. conscious, I guess, too. Just a personal question now. Do you do you have treats? Like if you have a treat, how often do you have them and what, what are they? Tony, I don't even think like that. So if I, if I feel like hot chips, I just eat them. Yep. There's no resistance. There's no, oh, what am I doing? There's no judgment. I feel like hot chips, I'm having them. It's just, a, I don't feel like them very often. <laughs> um, sweetness is not a thing for me. I couldn't care less about it. I'm way more of a savoury girl. Give me butter and salt any day. I like you, actually. Over sweet things. And I sometimes when 
people will say, oh, I want that as a treat. I often went, certainly when I was working one-on-one with people, I'd say, okay, I get that, but how is that actually treating you? And also, why do you feel like you need a treat? Because there's a lot of information in what someone will then say, okay, so do you not feel rewarded enough in your life? So you need the food to reward you or, and, and a food can't do that for us. We ask it to comfort us. It can't hug us. We ask it to uplift our spirits. It might do that for two seconds, but then our judgment kicks in and pulls us back down again, which is really destructive and I think takes away from, yeah, who we really are. Yeah. How long do you think it takes? I mean, you've got the six-week course. How long before you're suddenly not craving that after-dinner snack and you feel like you've got a bit more control? Yeah, it's about three to four weeks. So it's why the course is six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, uh, the first stage uh, is all about shaking the sugar off and that's for, for the first four weeks. So uh, our taste buds are all brand new. They're renewed every 21 days. And so when we, and it's why I actually ask people to not have it at all, because if you just keep having little bits, that shift in your taste buds doesn't happen. And you mentioned vegetables earlier, the bitterness of vegetables, that also helps the shift to happen. That also helps us when we embrace more of a bitter taste things you used to like, like really sickly sweet foods actually start to taste awful to you. They're too sweet. They're too sickly. So for example, people might be, oh, I can't stand dark chocolate. I've got to have milk chocolate. But then before you know, after about three weeks, the dark chocolate actually tastes okay. It's, It's not so bitter after all. You can actually taste that there's still sugar in that dark chocolate, just not very much. So it's about three to four weeks for that to happen for the, from a taste bud perspective. The emotional shift uh, can take a little longer, although for some people it's, you know, they get the inside of what they've been trying to get the sugar to give them, what they've been using it for. Once that insight hits, you can't then unlearn that. Mm. Oh, God, it, that's fascinating. Mm. And um, I, I do know what you mean because I remember, um, you know, I've been a quite a sweet or a chocoholic my whole life, um, but I have had periods where I could eat anything and I didn't understand people that said, oh, that's too sweet. But then when you do go on a bit of a healthy regime, it's funny how your mind turns. And to hear that it happens, you know, over about 21 days, mm. that's good to know because it's like just hang in there that's and it. you'll get to that point. Yeah, beautifully, so beautifully said. It does take that initial commitment. You know, I'm dedicating myself to my health because without my health, I have nothing, whatever mantra, whatever statements you need to reinforce your choice to take better care of yourself. That's particularly important for the first three weeks because your brain chemistry and your taste buds in the beginning want you to go back there. So it does take a commitment in the beginning, but then after that three, three and a half week hump, it's a lot easier. Okay. So if people want to do your six week course, particularly if you've listened today and you've thought, you know, I'm coming towards that menopause or perimenopause age, I certainly feel like I'm there at 39 just because I know mum went through it early so I want to be in the best shape I can or if you're in the um, midst of menopause and you want to learn how to help yourself or maybe you're nowhere near it and you just want to cut the sugar where do we go? Uh, thanks so much, Tony. The course It's a six-week program and it's at drlibby.com and you receive daily videos of education from me. There's a beautiful community forum there where myself and my team are in there supporting people because I think that 
makes a really big difference when you feel like you're not alone in, in making these changes. There's also a food matrix and you can, it's a drop and drag thing. It's an interactive thing where you can plan all your meals for the week if that's helpful. Uh, some of them are recipes because people feel more inspired when food is creative, whereas for other people, they don't want recipes. That's too difficult, especially during a working week. So there's some really simple throw together kind of meals and you just drag and drop it into the places that you want to. That's not everyone's cup of tea, but some people love that meal outline. Fantastic. Mm. DrLibby.com. Libby, thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure to have your knowledge, uh, particularly, I think, for women that are in that age where they really want to try and not be a statistic and have that, you know, telltale belly fat be just an assumption. So thank you so much today. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for how you care, Tony, and for your sharing your beautifully warm heart. Thank you. We Need to Talk with Tony Street. To get in touch, email we need to talk at coastonline.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, click to share with family or friends. Catch more from Tony Street, Jace Reeves and Sam Wallace. Listen 5 till 9 weekday mornings on Coast FM or check out the Weekly Chasers replay podcast right here. If you enjoyed this episode, why not check out my follow-up chat with Justine Shearer. We're a year after her gastric bypass surgery.